Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty exciting uh, founder. You know, it's uh, one of those interviews that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with what he, he has built and with this story. I think that we're going to be finding it quite inspiring. You know, building, scaling, financing, uh, also now the way that he's pulling, you know, the farmland with investors. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Carter Malloy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled, to, thrilled for the conversation. So originally born and raised there in Arkansas. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? A lot of fun. I, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I was born in a farming uh, community here in Arkansas in what we call the Delta. Uh, and, and then grew up in the quote unquote big city of Little Rock going, going back and forth to the farm um, on the weekends. So my, my dad was a farmer and mom entrepreneur. Uh, but have have a lot of fond memories of being outdoors and being around people growing things. So, what kind of what kind of farm did your did your dad have? Uh, we grew uh, and still do uh, rice, cotton, uh, soybeans, and a little bit of corn. That's amazing. So, I guess from seeing your father running the farm and and having his own business, what did you what did you learn? I mean, did you was that kind of like what? Uh, at what point you you said maybe you know I'm gonna have my own thing you know when I when I grow up. Both my mom and and dad uh, ran their own businesses and taught me that there can be both really good times and bad. You know it was it was uh, quite tumultuous uh, financially at, at points uh, with, without a doubt. But but also um, you know they, they I can just remember them being up all night working on their computers, just having real grit and determination uh, and, and persistence uh, to to succeed. And, and I think for me, really was attractive to somewhat control your own destiny, at least, right? And be, be able to uh, influence the output with, with how much you put in. So then how do you land in physics, in studying physics? I mean, it's a, quite an interesting shift here. Yeah, the, the university, I was initially wanted to be a doctor. And so hopped around and I went over to the business school and I got a C in accounting and thought, Wow, I really don't like this crap. <laughs> um, and and I'd always it just enjoyed problem solving quite a bit and, and math uh, growing up. And so I ended up doing my, my undergrad in physics. I, I did not intend to pursue a career in it, but I just really enjoyed the subject matter. Uh, my my intention was still at some point to then run my own business. 
and uh, from you know doing your own little businesses to touring you know as a musician so i mean that's a quite a lot of creativity and having fun after school i've always had a lot of fun i think that's important in life to to have a really good time and and so yeah i spent spent time touring as a musician and then i uh, stood up three different small businesses partially to help support that lifestyle uh the parsics i wanted to grow a business and i think suffice to say two of those were absolute dumpster fires uh, and, and maybe great learning lessons along the way. And, and one was successful enough to at least pay the bills. So then tell me about the, um, the process of going from, you know, the touring as a musician to having your little businesses to all of a sudden being in an investment bank as an investment banker. Yeah, I, I had this opportunity to uh, interview with this bank called Stevens, which is great middle market, sort of privately owned, old school in the good kind of ways investment bank. And uh, I was really interested in learning, and, and they had an opportunity to work in research, which meant I get to study businesses all day and get paid for it. So that was pretty fascinating, uh, even though it completely violated my core mantra of uh, working for someone else. Uh, d- despite that, I put on a necktie and went to work thinking that it'll be all right, and ended up absolutely falling in love with investing and, and with the research process. And I spent seven years there studying internet companies and data analytics and uh, property technology. So in terms of pattern recognition, because I think that when you are in investment banking, I mean, I, I interview a lot of founders that have done either consulting or investment banking or, or perhaps on the investment side, right, as a, as a private equity investor or venture capital investor. You know, it sounds like those three buckets definitely prepare you well for being an entrepreneur later on. So I guess in your case, how do you think that having that access or that visibility into the good, the bad, and the ugly in businesses, you know, and what works and what doesn't, you know, how do you think that has served you as, a, as an operator later on? I, I think it, it, it really helped me in that it, it honed me to, or, or taught me to, to focus on hallmarks of good businesses and uh, the, the numbers and the data. Uh, and then especially so later uh, after being at, at the bank, I, I um, was a partner at a, a long short equity hedge fund. And I spent a lot of time short selling uh, for, for five years. So I think helps teach a, a healthy dose of criticism and, and looking at the world through a, a, a broader lens. I think the what I underappreciated throughout that is I heard words like culture and, and people. And uh, I thought about incremental margins and not a whole lot about the actual people making things happen. And, and so did not fully appreciate it to the extent that maybe I do today uh, with the employees that we have here at the company, uh, just how important having the right people in the right seats is and how defining that that is and can be for a business. So during your your years on the, you know, really on, on, on financial services and, and more specifically in this last uh, gig that you did with the with the hedge fund, uh, you were in San Francisco. So at what point do you realize that perhaps it's time to pack the bags and, and go closer to home? Yeah, there are a couple of things there. My my dad's health wasn't great. I wanted to spend more time with him. I had a few children. And and had always wanted to start a business. So it's been a dozen years in, in investing, but I was always pretty uh, pretty obsessed with the idea of, of building a company someday. Uh, the and obviously had a, a lot of really bad ideas and bad pitch decks along the way that I put together before uh, coming to to Acre Trader and what we're building here today. Ultimately, this business is our, our customers are, are farmers or often people out out here, uh, people here in the in the Midwest and the Delta and the Western regions of the U.S. And so. I felt then in 2018 when, when I moved back, when my wife and I moved back here, that this was actually a really great place to start a business. 
despite the seemingly crazy notion at the time of moving from San Francisco to Arkansas, of all places, to start a technology company. Uh, I felt as though being close to our customers was important and that we could actually have some great employees and great employee retention here. So what were the um, the early days like uh, at Acre Trader? I mean, obviously you had the idea of starting a company, but how do you land on the on the idea of Acre Trader and, and how did you go about putting that together? The idea was ultimately really born from a conversation my, my dad and I were having at the time. Uh, reminder, he's, a, he's an older farmer. Uh, he actually turns 88 next month, but uh, he, he is despite his age, incredibly spry and studies every day and, and is a technology nerd. And he called me in 2017. We had spoken about uh, DeFi or whatever, you know, whatever they were calling at the time for, for years before that. And he called me in 2017 and said, hey, I'm going to buy some Bitcoin, uh, to which I responded, you, you moron. Why on earth would you ever think about paying $1,000 for uh, some asset that's not really an asset and is backed by like air? And I laughed at him and Lambas asked him and made fun of him and he did not buy it uh, much to, uh, you know, note to anybody listening, do not take investment advice on, on uh, Bitcoin from me. Uh, but, but that conversation really kicked off a, a, a broader conversation between us where he said, well, it would sure be cool if we could back it, back it by a, a hard asset like farmland, something that he and I had been buying and selling together for years and both have an extreme passion for. And that, that sort of kicked off a conversation of, you know, maybe we could go do a token, to which I then again said, no, that's kitschy and that's a trend and that'll definitely be gone like next year. Uh, mind you, again, this is five years ago, just highlighting how, how dumb I was, uh, but in, in avoiding some major trends. But the larger theme for us stuck true, which is we have this asset that we know well, there's trillions of dollars of this stuff. It's pretty fascinating as a as an individual investment, historically, it's put up like low double-digit RRRs with low volatility and um, it has, has served as an inflation hedge. It's not really correlated to other things. So lots of really fascinating things about it, but most people were unaware and, and, and also did not have access to it. So we started chipping away at this problem uh, of, of how we could bring what we were doing to the, to the masses. And that's really where we landed on the initial plan for AcreTrader, which is this simple notion of fractionalizing. Uh, farmland and allowing people to invest and participate in, uh, in rural America and, and farming and, and land ownership. So what's the business model there? How do you guys make money? We are usually paid by the seller of, of land. Uh, so think about, we look at the business on two sides, supply and demand, right? So uh, demand side is investors and, and that's a, a taller piece. But, but think about how we make money. We work with farmers all across the country. Uh, many of those farmers want to grow their businesses. There's economies of scale in their, in their business. And so they come to us and say, hey, I'd like to buy this $5 million property, but I've saved up hundred grand. Maybe it's a half a million dollars. Uh, I can't buy a $5 million property. Most people can't. And so we will work with that farmer and put together a package to then go out and raise the capital. For the investors, they come through and uh, that piece of land goes in a unique LLC. The investors come on, buy a, a portion of that LLC, uh, and then rinse and repeat with the next farm. And in that case, I mean, obviously building a marketplace is not easy because you have, it's like launching two companies, right? I mean, in this case, you have the farmers on one end, the investors on the other end. How do you go about, you know, really building it? And and what out of the two sides of the equation, I mean, typically in marketplaces like this, which are two-sided, I mean, you need to have the liquidity is going to be either brought by the supply or by the demand. And then, you know, once that what well, that is brought, everything works 
in the right direction with the right type of network effects and all of that uh, good stuff. So in this case, which one of those two sides would you say was the weakest one and you needed to make sure that you would get it right to have everything work after? Initially, the weaker side was the demand side. Uh, the far harder side of our business as we scale is the supply side. But but early on, uh, it, it took us a really long time to get that flywheel spinning, to, to get those network effects in place uh, for the simple reason of trust and that we built a really cool product. We had access to, to really great farms. Uh, we put it on the internet. People loved it. I quit my job. We, we hired a team and thought, you know, this is this is this is awesome. The feedback is so incredibly positive, and it was until it came time to actually put money in, and then people would go, "Yeah, this is really cool. I love this living about it." But remind me how long you've been around? You know, like <clears throat> six months. You know, All right. uh, remind me how long you've been in business. And, and like, you know, for them, you can imagine, like, hey, there's this new technology startup, and it's cool, and I like farmland, but I have to trust these yokels in Arkansas with like my hard-earned money for the next decade. Uh, that is a pretty difficult proposition. So trust was really hard and took a really long time to build. Uh, we did that through education and transparency, but uh, uh, certainly that was the, the hardest part of the business uh, in the early days. And I remember there's, um, there's a good friend of mine that, uh, that I actually told him that, that we were having this chat and uh, his name is Tom. He's, he's a wonderful guy. And he actually, he, he was the first one that I ever, you know, encountered the the possibility of investing in farmland, no? And he had done it via private equity. But he he actually mentioned to me that that typically on 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 this type of segment, there's three things to really keep in mind so that everything really works well. And one is the field network. The second one is who negotiates the leases. And the third is how you go about the network of tenant farmers. So I think if you could cover how you guys go about those three different things. That'll be fantastic for the people that are listening to. There are tons of extrinsic and intrinsic factors you've got to consider when, when investing in farmland. And I, I think that, that wraps up three uh, really important areas. One being is the, the uh, arguably the most important long term uh, is the land itself. What are the soils like? What is the water like? In the West Coast, can you get water? In the Midwest, can you get the water off? Uh, but but water is really important. So so quality of soil, quality of water, quality of climate. Uh, then the, uh, the the next on that list is exactly that the 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 lease uh, you're able to put in place or the agreement, uh, whether it's revenue share or or flat rent, with the farmer tenant there. And that's pretty closely related to the third, which is the tenant pool. Are there other tenants in this area? Is there a good network around here? Uh, and, and quite frankly, each of those eliminate a ton. Like the extreme, extreme majority of the farms we look at, uh, and, and you know, that that's sort of the first, the first blush. We, we've got a pretty intense diligence process, and it's run by a, a, a big team of folks here, both data scientists and then actual farmers, and and uh, you know, folks out uh, working with with landowners, farmers, both. Uh, it takes a ton of work, is the is the real answer, and every every offering has its own idiosyncrasies that have to be worked through. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept 
really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case, for you guys, as a, as a company, you've raised quite a bit of money too. So how do you guys go about capitalizing the business? We've raised $80 million in, in venture capital to date in our business. Uh, the, a couple of places we really invest that heavily, one is technology. Uh, we, we are very, very intentional about data science and geospatial analytics. Uh, those sound like buzzwords, but what that really means is uh, we believe pretty, pretty hardcore that we've got the best maps in the world and the, the best ability to understand and originate and, and look at land at scale. Uh, so, so really heavy investments in that and then in operational folks, certainly, and, and marketing, uh, all of those things matter to, to building a, a durable business. We are not after growth at all costs. I think it's a unique consideration within our business model that uh, we are a trust-based business and uh, we, we, we are not a standard uh, blitz, blitz scaling type of company. Uh, great, great book and, and mentality, but uh, we, we have to be very cautious because we deal with people's money and their land, their livelihoods. Uh, and, and so we, we uh, as a result, I think we're, we're capitalized for, uh, for the long-term foreseeable future uh, to, to go out and continue building. And typically for a company like this one, uh, when you are like going out to, to the investors, Carter, and, and, and you're doing the fundraising, I mean, in your, in your guys' case, you've done three, three rounds where you've raised uh, this money. What has been like the, um, the different types, I mean, that, that transition of expectations that you've had from going from C to Series A, from Series A to Series B? I mean, how has the, the mindset of that investor that you were encountering, how has that been shifting in terms of expectations towards you guys? The primary considerations, like, like the overarching is like, you know, for seed, you're just selling a dream, uh, you know, and in, in, in A, you're selling a dream that has some real product market fit. And the B realm, like, I say selling, you're, you're, that's, that's the story, right? The B realm, the story is really the metrics. And, and is this actually working? And what does the future look like? Uh, so each have their own considerations in terms of how you approach the market and, and with what details. Uh, I think what what we were, what we did right in those is that we were very honest in the in the seed and A rounds in particular of like this is a dream. Like here's our financial model, but it's crazy wrong. We just don't know in what direction, right? Here's here's our general uh, plan, and, and the the business itself has in fact shifted pretty dramatically uh, over the, over the last several years. So just being honest of like here's the thesis, right? Here's the plan. Here's how we're making money today. Uh, we don't actually know how this shakes out in five years, but 
we got an incredible team. We've got a huge TAM and we've got strong product market fit. So we want to go out and give it a go. Uh, so I, I think that's from a messaging standpoint was, was important for us. Uh, and then from a actual fundraising standpoint, just organization was, was what matters. And we've, we've bucketed each time doing fundraising in really tight periods. So, that, so like I, I just, I, as a uh, founder, we, as a team, don't think it's appropriate use of time to only be fundraising at all times. And I see a lot of friends that run businesses that are just constantly on the road, constantly on Zoom, pitching. And so what we've tried to do instead is create these little windows where, hey, we're heads down, we're executing and operating, and uh, we'll come up with well-advanced notice that this is our window. Like, like this year, we're going to speak to people uh, probably in December, right? And, and a touch base. Hey, here, here's the window for touch base. The next year we go out, we're picking dates arbitrary, right? But if we decide that June next year is the time period, then put every meeting inside of a two-week uh, moment there so that you can be most effective with your time, most effective with the investor's time, and, and come to decisions very quickly. So I guess for the people that are listening, Carter, to really understand the scope and size of uh, Acre Trader today, I mean, what, what can you share with us in terms of like number of employees or anything else that will give us an understanding on how big you guys are? Yeah, I think we're, as a company, you know, trying to adhere to that rule of at least 3x yourself each, each year uh, from a revenue standpoint. From an employee standpoint, uh, probably a little ahead of that is we're fortunate enough to be in a good uh, fundraising environment. So we were at 20 employees a year ago. We're at a, a little over 100 today. I think we'll cross the end of the year close, close to or, or through 200. And as you're thinking about the operations for a business like this, I mean, it's a it's not easy because, I mean, you have the marketplace that we were discussing earlier, but then also the other side is that you're dealing with securities because you are obviously bringing, as you were saying, those investors to invest in LLCs. So how how does it work? You know, like when you're building a business like this, the compliance side and how, how easy it is to adapt to that and to execute with that? You know, for... For me personally, it was fine. It's acceptable. I grew up my whole life in a regulated environment, and and you know being appropriately concerned about poking the bear, uh, and and uh, you know even just misstating something, even even with good intention, uh, can still get you in a really bad position. So I think we've had a, a constructive paranoia since since day one as a company. Uh, it was one of our very first hires was a, a lead uh, attorney with with deep securities experience. Um, and and continues to be an area of focus. Uh, perhaps at best is of our core values on the wall. Number one is be in business tomorrow, and so don't do anything that would risk the company uh, that that is uh, dangerous from a compliance or a regulatory standpoint. And in this case, like for example, for Acre Trader, I mean, there's probably a bunch of people that are wondering, like, hey, investing in in farmland, no? I mean. How does that work? I mean, on, on Acre Trader, I mean, let's say I'm an investor and I put, let's say, like one of the minimum investments that they, that are required on each one of those projects. I mean, how does that work? Am I like uh, waiting on cashing out? Am I like waiting for distributions every year or, or how, what should I expect as an investor? So as an investor, we, we put the information of each farm on the website. We go in there and, uh, you know, it's a few clicks. It's pretty easy to do once you become... Uh, well enough educated. I think that is the most important part is, is upfront education and having investors that really dig in and study and call with questions and, and uh, learn. The investor experience uh, beyond a, a very simple online financial transaction is then, uh, you're exactly right, for, for most farms, there will be some forms of distribution that come each year. So you, 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 can make, you can make money two ways in, 
farm way investing uh, usually. One of those is from income, right? The farmer's paying your rent or revenue share. Uh, the other is that the land itself can appreciate underneath you as well. And the combination of those two is what's, what's created uh, the strong historical returns for, for farmland. Uh, so through our platform, you, you get exposure to the cash flows and we, we can uh, you know, have, have that go out into the individual investors' wallets uh, to, to receive those distributions. And then in terms of uh, recognizing the appreciated value of farmland, should there be any, uh, that, is, that can be captured usually through the sale of the entire farm at the end of life. Usually life is measured kind of five to 10 years. Uh, there are also uh, times when a, a farm may sell earlier than that. Uh, and then there's the opportunity for secondary sales, right? So uh, there is a minimum one-year lockup requirement, after which, if, if you'd like to, for, for most of the farms, you could sell them to a friend or family and we'll help facilitate or through another platform. Uh, then we have also built uh, our own secondary market. So that, that is uh, fully, from a technical standpoint, 100% ready to go live today. Uh, we are tying up a few last things, but uh, would, would expect to get that live very soon. So imagine, Carter, that, uh, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where all of a sudden the vision for Acre Trader is fully realized. What does that world look like? This is a fun one. Uh, it requires us to zoom out a little bit from the core investing platform. Uh, our, our mission as a company is to empower our customers to buy and sell land smarter with advanced technology, data, and expertise. So uh, we, the, the, farm, the land transaction itself is a business goal for us and helping people to, to buy and sell. So uh, at, at maturity, our, our goal, our business goal is to become the default platform for land transactions globally. I love it. I love it. Now, you know, it's incredible, the consciousness now around the farmland and, and the food and all of that stuff. I mean, you see now people like Bill Gates, you know, that are like one of the biggest, uh, you know, owners of farmland in the U.S. So, so what do you think is triggering that? Because, I mean, it's, it's quite a lot of people now that are trying to get involved with farmland. There, there are a number of reasons that people get involved. I think it's also important to contextualize uh, Something like 40% of farmland is rented, uh, where, where the farmer does not directly own their land. But, uh, but then an extremely small plot part of that is actual professional investors, right? So private equity in farmland is like 30, 40 billion, up from 3 billion a decade ago, so growing like crazy. But 30 or 40 billion relative to, to $3 trillion of farmland in the US is, is a drop in the bucket, like literally a point of market penetration. Uh, Bill Gates's ownership of a billion dollars of land or whatever the number is uh, in, in context of how much farmland there is in the United States is teeny, teeny, tiny. Uh, and, and so it's still very, very early in terms of uh, outside folks getting in, interested in land. Uh, and we're seeing some really positive benefits of that in terms of bringing capital into rural communities, helping farmers grow their business, uh, investing in sustainability. So I think as a whole, the trend is positive. There are certainly uh, bad players and, and uh, negative repercussions in places, but, but as a whole, uh, when, and for our business in particular, we're really excited about the, uh, the, the social good that we can have, uh, both in terms of sustainability, that we, we enroll our farms in, in various programs, uh, and, and then also just helping farmers grow their business. That's, that's really what we're uh, most excited about. One of the things we're most excited about coming to work every day. Now, there is a certain, I've heard that there are certain restrictions on how 
you're able to go about buying land, right? Like there is certain limitations, like in certain states. Uh, so how do you typically overcome, you know, like that type of, of hurdles? It depends on the state uh, and the ownership structure and what the restrictions are. As a whole, uh, they're not material restrictions and they're they're limited to a few geographies. Got it. Now, imagine, Carter, that um, that I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time uh, a little bit earlier, you know, than that point that you told your dad, you know, that uh, investing in Bitcoin was a bad idea. But imagine I you have now the chance of having a sit down with that younger Carter and you're able to give that younger Carter one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Wow, there's so many things I want to say to myself. Uh, I think the most important one is uh, listen more than you speak without an out uh, in, in every context and regard, listening and understanding people. Uh, is is the most important thing you can do in business. And how do you go about doing that uh, in order to really build a culture, you know, of your business? Because I mean, as you were saying, you've gone from like 20 employees to over 100 employees, and I find that to a certain degree, it's all about retention, being able to to allow people to see that there's a future for themselves within the organization. So how do you go about that? Using implementing that listening to making sure that people are excited about what's saying coming from them. Yeah, I think again, like listening means empathy, right? So, so really, if you're listening, it means you're trying to understand the other person's viewpoint. So, so one is certainly employing tons of, of empathy, and and when you do that, you're able to then should be able to most of the time recognize uh, are our goals as, as individuals aligned, uh, and if so, then then let's rock and roll. Uh, if not, then then no. And I think for us, like maybe the best stat about our business, like. The unfortunate side is we have let go of something like 10 employees. Uh, we've only had one actually leave. Uh, so we've, we've over four years, we've had one person voluntarily a trip out of the company. Uh, so we are, while there's tons of things messed up and challenges and fires every day and all kinds of problems along the way, the thing that I and we are the most proud of by far is uh, they get to come to work every day with a bunch of truly aligned, uh, you know, badass individuals. I love it. So Carter, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, there is a website, acretrader.com. You can certainly go to and check out. Uh, she has an email, info at acretrader anytime, uh, or, or to me directly, my first name at acretrader. Amazing. Well, Carter, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. It's been fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.